Thing. 
but in governments it's the same thing. Ever notice how, for example, President of the United States ages? Before and after shots of them going into office and out. Why do you think? I mean, even though they don't maybe understand ethics completely or whatever, they get a quick primer on what happens if they speak one word sideways. If you believe it, maybe people die, maybe people are hurt, maybe economies change or whatever. You know, you become a Ehud. If you say your own opinion, you can destroy people's lives. say Barbara Streisand is extremely, has extreme stage fright. I think George Soros, the investor, said if he thinks he understands an investment completely and doesn't see a way that it would fail, he feels very insecure indeed. He has to see the uncertainty to feel good about that. It's interesting that you say that because I, I definitely find that insecurity keeps me sharp. Like, keep, like keeping a room a little cold, it's like it keeps you awake. But there's a difference between that kind of insecurity that drives focus and then the kind of insecurity that paralyzes expression. Well, you're, I think you're confusing insecurity with the effects of insecurity. Like, do you know what I'm going to say right now? <laughs> you're insecure about that. Is that scary for you? No. Why not? Because I trust that what you're going to say is going to be good. And in the end, you're going to be okay. <laughs> When we have insecurities, and this relates to vulnerability, where we think we may not be okay, then it becomes scary. It's not the insecurity that's the problem, it's the fear of the insecurity. And not even fear as in an excited fear, like a roller coaster fear, it's fear as in a terrorized fear. Yeah. Um, and you can, of course, recognize that excitement isn't really fear in the same way and that when we talk about fear is it a fight or flight fear it's a certain type of a thing but it's not the insecurity insecurity doesn't bother you insecurity you know is wonderful if everything you could predict everything it'd be pretty dull then we'd be robots again well yeah and like what you were saying about unpredictability versus predictability and creativity like you need a sense of insecurity not so you're going to go out on stage and you're scared you're going to be rejected. Yeah. What's the worst that's going to happen? Really the worst. I think in that moment, like I was thinking about that as we were talking, it feels like I'll be unloved forever and for the rest well, of my life. Well, let's, let's talk about the mechanics of it. Let's okay. get into it. Okay. You go out on stage. You make your entrance. You're not Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare recently, yes? Yes, yes? So you make your entrance and suddenly there's silence. Yeah. Now, why this side? You're not you're either you're so bad or you're just totally blank. Yes. You go out on the stage and everyone's expecting, and, and even the audience knows the line's supposed to come. They can all say it, but you you're just don't know where you are. Maybe you mutter something totally incomprehensible. 
Okay, now what is gonna happen? Oh, you do have some credits in the front row, they start writing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so what's gonna happen? Wait, wait, it's going a little further now. I hear some booze coming from the yeah, audience. And some guffaws and some people clearing their throats. It's worse. No, I and it just feels so it's like such rejection, like so. Wait, like rejecting you're not no They're not rejecting you. Right. They're rejecting your performance. That's where I get confused. You're you are confusing you yourself with what you do. If, if that's if that's removed, that doesn't mean you don't have a a type of what I might say sharpening excitement for the challenge. But you come in touch with a part of you that is invincible, authentic, congruent, and unique, and that is indestructible. Everyone starts throwing things, they put a spotlight on you, and then people start making fun, and then they're yelling, you know, Allison Mack sucks, and they do all this stuff, and finally someone comes out just with a hook, and just pulls you off the stage, and the next day, the picture in the front of the New York Times, full thing is you on stage going with a hook, pulling you off the stage, and they say, biggest flop ever, do not ever listen to Alison Mack again. She's a bad actress, a bad person. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And then just your name and the words terrible, terrible, terrible written. And then it, not only that, they take it and they put they put it all over and all not only on all the street corners, but in everywhere where you go, they put they plaster that picture up so everyone sees. Then they have people following you holding that picture over your head and they point to her like bad uh, Allison, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay, but are you alive? Yeah. Are you fine? Yeah. All right, the alarm rings and you wake up and it was an all, all a bad dream and are you still all intact? Yeah. So ultimately, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you, the self. It bothers your evaluation of yourself and your performance. But there's a part of you, if you believe in a soul or creativity or whatever, that's transcendent of your performance. And that's the very part that allows you to change your performance. If you were hooked to the laws of physics without having any sort of a separation, then your performance would determine your performance, which would determine your performance, which would determine your performance. Yeah, just like a snowball rolling downhill, you really wouldn't be able to change the course of events. But the beauty of our possible delusion that we have free will is that we can change the course of our events. Which is so much what the source is. Looks at it. It also, I hope, brings you to a point where you have that that wonderful sense of invincible sublimity, Camus quote, you know, in the depth of winter I find the invincible summer, to find your invincible summer, to find that not only the core, that invincible summer, but then what arises from, from that core is every moment of life has crafted an experience of you, 
and your life and how you've been in itself. And that is unique. And you can bring that uniqueness authentically to anything. And you can explore all the different facets of yourself and use yourself as the best tool you can. So the source is designed from a behavior perspective to allow you to bring one, expand yourself. Because people don't realize there's so many parts of themselves that they lock away in a dungeon. And they're very clever at avoiding it. But that part of themselves exists and they don't want to examine it. And as long as they don't examine it, they're missing certain colors off their, their palette that they could be painting with. To accept the broad aspects of yourself, to accept all of these things that are you, both good and bad, successes and failures, all of these things, these performances that came as a result from you, you've been performing your whole life, to deny certain aspects of your performance, to underemphasize certain things and overemphasize other things, makes it so that you don't have the whole self that you bring to whatever communication you're doing, whether you're communicating something through acting, or communicating something through your children, or communicating something to your partners, or whatever it may be, even communicating to yourself. And in so doing, for example, if a person has access to more of themselves to bring to any behavior or any action, their sculpting will be better, their baseball will be better, their acting will be better, their participation in community events will be better, fuller, more, more authentic. You know, it's worse than a person that isn't authentic. A person that is authentically not whole, because it's a whole part of them that is blind to being authentic. If you have the person that's inauthentic, that sort of presupposes, it's a trick question, but sort of presupposes that there is an authenticity. But when you've taken part of yourself and distorted it or locked it away, it's impossible to be authentic because your representation of yourself to yourself is inauthentic. So you become authentically inauthentic, but in worse, you become authentically incomplete. And although incompletion is an important thing to be able to reveal, you have to see it. You have to know. Otherwise, you mistake completion for incompletion. So you have to see it. You have to see the parts of you that you've shaped. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, at least it, in the least see that you that there is all there, and at best be able to to re-welcome those parts into your repertoire. And in so doing, you know what it is like to have a wall there and can authentically represent what it's like to have a wall there, even if you no longer have that wall there. Okay. Uh, and we, we've had some on the West Coast before, 
that are in Latin America. Yeah, there's a large uh, Mexican cohort, so almost half the company is Mexican. Yeah, uh, in terms of the courses that we offer that you'd be able to do, the basic course, as I said, is a 16-day course. Um, and Albany is the only city where we offer all 16 straight, um, or all 16. Um, and then New York City, we offer the first five. So we have we have a few of those five-day trainings throughout, throughout New York City. So you could start in New York City, and then you could finish in Albany, or you could do all in Albany. The website is the most the most literature you're going to find in because we have no textbooks. Okay. Literally, our whole, our entire course is all conversation-based. All right. It's amazing how it works. It's very different. So it's not, this is not like coming to a course and learning a bunch of facts. This is, this is uh, completely experiential. I don't know much about how it works, but I know. Um, unfortunately, Scientology has had quite a quite a bad media rap as well. Well, I was just saying, it, you know, I, it was funny because I grew up having, you know, very negative, you know, feelings about Scientology, yeah. having never have done it. And now as I've gotten older and I'm starting to see the, the bias that I've had based off of very little data other than the few people who had a bad experience, which is not a true representation of what it really is. Yes. I, uh, I think that's, uh, I think that is true on this, this work. Which is not a good and bad thing, but it definitely has negative content on us. Well, I, I end, so that we can end, because even if we do the video interview, it's not to say that, that, that we for sure can allow you to do it, but that would definitely be a good step. Well, I, I'm glad we could uh, connect there, and then let me, just to live with today, I'll send you um, a few times this week that can work, and we'll go from there. But certainly, Things like bullfighting, boxing, football, have some very primitive aspects to them. And maybe in a hundred years from now, when we're beyond that, those sports will be seen as we see gladiator fights and people being tortured. Now, society's value change, values change and what people are willing to pay for change. And what people are willing to pay for is reflective of their, their current value set. But if you want to be involved in transforming people, educating people, moving them forward, unless people are aware of their pain money and where they are as opposed to where they want to be, you'll become less wonderful educational tool, but people would go forth willingly to do that as they go forth to a health club. Well, people now recognize that we don't get enough exercise. Long ago, when we had to plant all our, our food and, and go in the jungle and hunt, we didn't have to worry about going to health clubs, we got to exercise, but now we don't, so we go to health clubs, and we love it. start to have a certain type of media that is more responsible than that as health clubs But right now, the state of affairs, especially the film industry, is explained to you that there's a big difference between film and stage. Someday, the whole profession of actors 
don't know if that's in 50 years, 200 years, or what, but it'll all be able to be done with computer-generated characters or com com computer-generated simulated characters of real life. And film is extremely limited. Film is one of the... I can't form a rapport with my audience. But the stage actor who goes out on stage can touch each individual in the audience and every, every performance is different because of that human-to-human -human contact. What the world needs, I believe, is more human-to-human -human contact. It's been shown time and time again that the more people can separate from being personally involved with each other, the more they're able to punish, whether it's the Milgram experiments or even in a courtroom where, you know, the uh, prosecution refers to the person uh, only as the, you know, the defendant, whereas the defense uh, refers to them by their full name and tries to humanize them. It's this whole battle between humanization and dehumanization. And some of what happens in a film is a practice of dehumanization. Film is a very powerful tool. It's not film that is bad. It's how that tool is used by society. But our current society is using film more as, you know, if you will, a fortifier, um, uh, a set of chaotic values, a fortifier of entertainment, and a fortifier of dehumanization. There was a statistic I, I had heard, and I, I don't know if this is true, but in the United States, by the time someone is 18, I think they've witnessed, they say, something like 20 or 40,000 murders. Whether it's cartoons or whatever, human getting killed human, human getting killed human. That's far more than the gladiators even witnessed. And they become used to it. It doesn't become as profoundly tragic as the ending of a life ending of a, a legacy, the ending of a, a whole existence. It becomes just an act. You know, you become numb. And we are becoming numb to each other because we are participating in this, if you will, orgy of technology. And the pendulum has to swing back the other way. There needs to be more person-to-person -person contact. There needs to be more of this communication, more of this direct, authentic connection. So I, I'm a believer that going out and seeing people act on the stage is a whole different world and a very important one because it's a group of people who decided to get together and experience humanity with one another, from one another. Whereas when we watch film, we go into the film sometimes It's a different thing. It's a very, it's a very sharp knife, but that knife is not being used as a scalpel. It's being used more as a, a dagger. So the film industry and the entertainment industry, and in particular the profession of actors, really needs to start to guide the world. And the economics of it right now is very difficult. For every acting part, you have so, so many actors. So some of them will do anything 
to have a party. And we'll participate in anything. There is no ethical consideration. And those actors that are ethical, that would refuse work, unless they're the very top of their field, will never be known. So it's a difficult thing. Be known as an actor and potentially have to do some of these acts. Some actors, I mean, I'm sure some of the very top actors, maybe they were able, maybe they were able to take a path that was wonderful to the top, or maybe they took a path that wasn't so wonderful but made it wonderful in the end. But a lot of people don't have that opportunity and unfortunately support this juggernaut that's going forward, that's reflecting society's values and reinforcing them in a way that is amoral.
suicide is when the essence of life no longer becomes as exquisite, as miraculous as that which you perceive to be that way. You know, being grateful for being alive, experiencing the miracle of being alive um, is a thing that few people actually work to foster to have the depth of that and that can be and that is with the source or with programs like reverence a deep practice and the more you practice the deeper you become and the better you get at it and that becomes a cornerstone to everything that you do in life but people perceive things in life that are very painful and pain is considered bad but it's not the pain that's bad, it's the suffering that's bad. Pain is actually a very important thing. If we look at something like love, and most people say, oh, they desire love. In the end, they either act from love or hate, or desire, and as humans, is to be loved, or to experience love. Love has been, unfortunately, the word, the concept has been tarnished. Love is something that, in the most developed human sense, uh, the sperm and the egg. An egg does not have love. The sperm does not have love. Embryo in the womb does not have love. A newborn baby does not have love. But an old wise person has an exquisitely developed sense of love potentially. Somewhere in between being born and being old and wise, Love happens. Some people think love happens in puberty because they start getting all sorts of tingly feelings and now things feel alive. They feel um, like you want to consume in them and they call that love. The nature of love, uh, or what I might call the, the most developed aspect of human love, is not about just happiness. It's not about feeling good. And I, and I uh, had said the other day, I came up with a sort of a concept that love disfigures happiness. Um, people who are seekers of happiness are actually going the opposite direction of love. And why do I say this? It's not that love doesn't contain moments of happiness or moments of joy. You don't have a whole lot of complicated emotions, but you have this body, and this body desires to eat, desires warmth, this sort of a thing. And you start to develop emotions, and you have fight or flight sort of a things. And then as you get a little older, you start to have more variety of emotions, more different types of feelings. And feelings often are just that. There are certain types of visceral, somatic things that we call an emotion have ideas attached to them. And we find, as we become more intellectually able, we find that those ideas inspire, we 
stepping on a rattlesnake, almost getting bitten, walking down the street one summer day, stepping and hearing the rattlesnake at my feet. And it's just a twig. But because of my unique experience, I go into fight or flight. I think I better run away from that rattlesnake. So it's this very interesting, complex interrelationship between this ideas, abstractions, principles, emotions that are emotions, meaning emotions that are much more viscerally caused and the body itself. But we say love is beyond all that. And when we say that someone loves someone, even when they speak of love of the Bible, love is When someone maybe is even willing to sacrifice their life for the love of their partner. And we then see. And when we see that in a, a movie or a play or in real life, and we let ourselves go there, we feel this deep pathos. We feel this, this sense of love. And love comes not from the receiving. It comes from the giving. It comes not from the satiation of the comfort. It comes from the sacrifice, it's pain. That's how we know it. That isn't to say it doesn't exist in joy and happiness, but we know it through our pain. And if you have a fear of pain, you have a fear of knowing your own love. It's not the pain that is the problem, it's the suffering that is the problem. Yeah, that's, that's possible for me. And I can get to know you a little bit better. Um, the other thing that would be good to do is, you know, you, you can look online. I, I want you to... Because right now we're under such a severe uh, smear campaign, I also, you know, I think we're more apprehensive that, you know, to really make sure that people that are coming want to be here. Uh, because we need... Um, it's been a very difficult time with the media, so we want people to be aware of that so that you can understand. I could say a bunch of things that are just not creating creativity. Creating creativity. There's a creative yeah. act. Or is it like a muscle that you Or a scientific act. Yeah. Well, I, I normally speak of science and creativity as sort of being somewhat opposite. But they're, they're not really. I mean, inherent in science is this notion that we can have 
stuff like that. But, uh, you know, point is, if we have something that we can predict, it becomes not creative at all. It has no free will. And it sucks. And if it seems to have free will, we see it as things, things, parts of it that are not predictable and thereby created. It creates. The thing that comes from it is not a function of that which comes before in any way that we can predict. It's as if this thing birthed something totally new and unpredictable. Unpredictable is not creative. So, of course, we as humans feel we have free will, and that's sort of interesting, but it doesn't mean we do. It just means we can't see our own programming enough to say that we're just robots. Now, if it ever comes about that we find that we are truly just robots, automata of sorts, So that which makes us not a scientific, predictable thing is creativity. Now most people take creativity. Unfortunately, creativity in itself has a was a pure aspect. And then as with many unexplainable and really unmeasurable. We can measure red. Both of us consistently see something as red. We can create a machine that detects red. But the redness in red is something that, as of now, is very personal to us. Our whole experience of the universe, whether it's Beethoven or the stars or redness, is personal to us and right now stands behind an impenetrable veil. Is thereby a type of mysticism. So our humans completely 
programmable, predictable, um, at least right now by human expression and thinking, no, we can't explain ourselves like machines. We can't write the equations of our behavior yet. Um, and creativity is that which he can't explain. Now, of course, we like to think of creative creativity in a functional sense. Uh, creativity as applied to the arts. But one could say that the essence of creativity is biopoiesis, which is the creation of life. Here we have this inanimate planet. We have all these different chemical sort of things going on, this environment, uh, maybe even creating things like amino acids. And then somewhere along the line, there's this spark or flash, whatever it was. And now there's this thing that we call life that we can't quite explain, except it has certain characteristics. It holds itself out against physics. You know, life maintains itself in a certain way that non-life doesn't. And of course, as we get more advanced in science, we see a number of things that seem to straddle this, this boundary. We can't tell if they're alive or not. But the robust experience of life is it's this thing that, that, that goes of its own accord and in the human body, when life leaves the human body, it, it seems now to just decay into just the physics of the universe. It's chemicals and mass, all these different things, just, and it's, the life is gone. So creativity seems to sprout out up out of nowhere because if it sprouted from somewhere, right equation where it came from, then it would be definable. So you might have to say that creativity thereby sort of pervades the universe as it goes through it and is, is there and inherent somehow in it. Um, so you might say that between chaos and structure, between science and creativity, we have this structure that we experience as the universe. And when we are being creative, hopefully we tap into that force um, unexplainable by science as opposed to being in the force that's very explainable by science, inertia, and just calling that our creativity because we're lazy. So then if that's the, <laughs> if that's the nature of creativity, is there some way that you can practice the muscle so it doesn't feel so reactive and it's still not pre-programmed, but it's something that you can slip into easily or something that you can access at will? Well, when you say that, you're asking more for applied creativity. You know, your subconscious, the way your pupils move, a whole bunch of things may have creativity involved. You know, um, I mean, certainly you can say they move with respect to light a certain way, things like that. But in all of physics, we find there's this, what you might call a minor unpredictability. And in behavior, there's these that are minor unpredictabilities that we call free will. So creativity values. So what you want to do is channel it into something that's socially acceptable and labeled as creativity. I guess so, or maybe just the root of uh, something that you produce. I mean, how do you know you mean creative? Educational platform. So there's 
it's like university in that the 16th day is kind of like your undergraduate degree. Yeah. And you, as you, uh, you continue to take higher level courses depending on your level of understanding of, of certain concepts. Um, so it's, it's really neat how people can do it in that way. Um, but so again, the reason that you know, we, we were very mindful of who comes and, and you know, definitely we don't know somebody, um, we, we want to really make sure that the people that are coming are in a place that they want to grow. If somebody doesn't want to grow, this is the last place they should be. You know, and part of the reason we have a lot of negative press or is because, you know, there's people that were there that really should have never been there in the first place. People are taking time, they're taking money, they're taking resources, um, and spending time to come work on themselves. And we want people that really want to be there. Does that make sense? Having you pursue it right. and bring it up so it ultimately went even arbitrating between Nancy and yourself right. with me. Right. That was very good. But what I'm trying to say though, Keith, is, is that we believe that there are certain problems that pink or white elephants, whatever we want to call them in the room, and collectively a group of us, and there are many people outside this group of ten, there are about 40 people that I could list for you right now, that see these similar elephants, and yet we as a company don't ever address those elephants. And I don't necessarily agree with you, but maybe not address it the way Yes, it seems that that is true. We don't know why. And to some degree, you can switch around as an adult. You know, you have a, a kid that's very 
not self-aware, doesn't care about people very much, self-involved. 20 years later, you have someone that's a, some sort of deeply compassionate world leader. You know, different children have their brains that myelinate at different, different rates. When a, a part of the neurons, the, the functioning of the brain, if you will, it's not like all children are born and their brains are at the exact same state and they can do the exact same things at the exact same time. And it's not even in the exact same order. Now, if you watch linguistic development, you can have some children that just are so far behind in language development. They can barely speak a word. Then the next month, they're speaking in sentences. So how these things fit together is, is by our science right now, pretty unpredictable and pretty, pretty miraculous. But really what counts is where they are and what their next step is to help them go forward. And wherever they end up is the best they can end up. You don't want to want enlightenment for every child. That's one step worse than you wanting it for yourself. It's like a forced enlightenment. Yes, exactly. I want you to be enlightened. <laughs> so, um, I just was curious, what do you see as the greatest limitation between men and women in their quest to relate and loving and compassion? I can be a little smart ass. Yeah. Well, the biggest limitation that women have is that they're women. Yes. And the biggest limitation that men have is that they're men. Now, <laughs> that is, of course, uh, uh, not only you know, an intentional wise-ass <laughs> oversimplification. You know, culturally, we form certain images about gender and, and uh, about things like that in both men and women. And that, in some ways, lays the groundwork for the interaction. Now, in some of the Jeunesse series, one of the ways I like to do this, because Okay, I think sometimes I have. Every once in a while, I, I do have an insight. I don't know if it's valuable if it's useful for people, but one thing I do know, I go back to some of those really smart people in history and look at all the things that are written, look at plays, look at commercials, look at all these things that surround us in media, and look at it like an archaeological dig. Let's find what forms our idea of what a woman is and what a man is by what is in the poems. What is in, what are the top people who, for example, call themselves, I hate to use the terms, but let's say feminist or liberated feminist. You know, there's one in one of the Jeunesse tracks. I went and I, you know, here I'm picking poems that are supposed to be representative to women about womanhood. I can do the man thing because I'm a guy. But what right do I have to go and pick poems about women? That reminds me of this. It was a silly Saturday Night Live skit about it was a it was a parody on a show it's called like uh, the woman show are all about women. And it's a bunch of guys talking about women and talking about all these very sexist things. And that's what's like, so here I go. So so I look and I try to find out who is, you know, or top, you know, feminine, 
feminist or female representative authors. And then I found a woman that got together like 30 of them and they all picked all these women who are authors, who are published and things like that, picked the like top five poems that every woman should read that represent that. That was pretty good using their authority. And when you compare that to the male poems, it's striking. And it's striking what these poems educate us to do. And by looking at literature, looking at our culture, looking at this, this stuff, we all produce for each other. What are these things saying? What are the messages that our children get in language, in video games, in TV shows, in movies, in anything? What are they, you know? Even people with the, take the word hysteria, a lot of people don't know what that, the, the root of that is. And that's something that really slants against women. Oh, hysterical can now be funny. Hysterical, hysterical, hyster, this, hyster, that. It's all about the uterus and all about things with it. But it, we have so many subtle poisons that make males a certain way as they go to men and females a certain way as they go to women. And to become aware of them is striking and startling. And both sexes, humiliating. When, when men find out really how, how awful we are, it is, it's humbling, it is scary, it is, we don't know what to do. And when women find out the similar things, their counterpart, and I, I've just heard from women, and I know you've gone through it, um, I hear that it's embarrassing. You have top female authors saying things that are so much lock and key into the problem. And what you come to realize with Jeunesse is the dance is or some of the different things that are going on. And in bringing this, this ability to see to people, the hope is that over time we will evolve beyond it, which I believe so. You know, it's a, I had learned, you know, like distinctions in language. Once you learn the distinction, like you learn the difference between good and well, it's very hard to use them incorrectly again, or nauseous, nauseated, you know. Someone says I'm nauseous. Once you understand that, that uh, distinction, it's very funny. To say I'm nauseous, you know what it is? Um, if I'm saying I'm nauseous, it means I am making other people nauseated. The feeling of nausea is something that is very uncomfortable for us. And if we have that feeling, we are nauseated. If we are nauseous, we give other people the feeling. Yes, yeah, so, oh, I'm nauseous. 
everyone in the room feels nauseated. So it's sort of this, this funny thing. Now, are you going to be able, next time you go, as many people don't say, oh, I'm nauseous. Oh, no, nauseous. Yeah. <laughs> because you see, the point is, when you have these distinctions, when you see it, and especially when you see it, not just because someone like me says so, or trainers say so, or the trainee says so, or the people in the training say so, you know, so you have other. Maybe it's just very isolated and not true. But when you see it time and time again in bestsellers, major movies, and it, it's not once, not twice, but it's incredibly high percentage of everything you see, then you start to digest yourself more confidence. That's really cool. I... of things that I've said and I'm mindful of that and I'm leading an organization that's doing something very good the bright you might say you know but this is a an old Christian adage which I think is very true the brighter the light the more the bugs right. 